So at this point that you say, oh, but no, this part is actually going out live, Nick. Oh, we forgot to tell you. Hello, I'm Hector Acero, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. We gather friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. My name is Danielle Yet, and today is the final installment of our series with resident senior member in theology, Nick Ansel. One thing Nick loves is to read the Bible with people, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, in order to see what new thing it has to say as we live our lives here and now. Nick has a gift for seeing the Bible as a living word. We're glad we've been able to spend the past few weeks chatting with Nick about some of the ways the Bible comes alive for him. And today, to help wrap things up, Mike Wagenman is with us to ask Nick some lingering questions from our series. Mike is an adjunct faculty member here at ICS and teaches theology and religious studies at Western University. We'll let Mike introduce himself in just a second. So let's get started. Hi, I'm Mike Wagonman, and at Western University, I am the chaplain. And what that means for those of you who don't know what that word means is that I invite the university community to engage in transformational educational habits for their spiritual well-being. So I teach courses in uh, practical issues like friendship and embodiment and colonialism. I also lead a podcast on self-awareness. And in terms of my education, I earned my PhD at the University of Bristol in the UK. And mostly I'm interested in communication and uh, how the church as an institution reads and interprets scripture and then proclaims it without resorting to propaganda or other forms of coercive power. And so my work grows out of the same reformational tradition as the ICS. So it's a real pleasure to be talking to Nick today. And Nick, I uh, was noticing in the last few episodes of the podcast, this element that kind of danced around the edges of those episodes. And it's, it's this issue of fear, I think, 
And I just want to give you a, a bit of a story of a professor I talked to a few years back, biology professor who came to my office and said, every year in biology, they run into students who want to argue Genesis versus evolutionary theory. And he said to me that he feels very not at ease because of his lack of familiarity with Genesis. So I invited him to read Genesis 1, and he was very anxious about it. He'd never read Genesis 1 before. And at the end of reading Genesis 1, he had tears streaming down his face. And he said, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Now, this was a person completely unfamiliar with Genesis 1. And it was like he engaged Genesis 1 free of sometimes the fear that people who are very familiar with Genesis 1 feel constrained by. So could you just say a little bit more about this element of fear in our engagement with scripture? Yeah, the impact of fear, it comes in many forms. So one of the deepest problems is if we have that fear towards God. So the idea that this is a text that might speak for God or, or God might speak through it. If there's a fear of God, then we're worried about what might get said. So the story that you started with is very interesting. Um, and there are all kinds of anxieties around Genesis 1 and, and science and so forth. And I think to invite someone to read Genesis 1 um, and to just relax and just allow the meaning of the text to happen, as, as it were, and not to kind of box the text in with the kind of, I need to know which side the text comes down on in terms of this question and that question. And it's like those kind of constraints, just to let those go, allow the text to breathe. That's very important. I'll say something about my own reading of Genesis 1 in relation to the creation evolution debate, which is a very, very complex debate. And it, com it comes back to the Sabbath. This is one, one of the places I would, would focus on, the Sabbath. There's a, there is a long-standing tradition that sees when God um, rests on the Sabbath, that that means God stops creating. So um, God has done all this creative work, and then God stops, rests from his work. Um, and now God is busy sustaining creation and redeeming it when it falls into sin. But, but creation has, has happened. And that's all set up. And then um, Christians that want some space for evolutionary development will just have the potential for that front-loaded into the creation in the beginning. And those that don't want that will, will have more fixed structures that are more permanent in place at the beginning. But they agree on God no longer is doing any creating, but only sustaining and redeeming because of the Sabbath, because God rested. Okay, that's a very, very fundamental misreading. And it's so long standing that it really does deserve to be challenged. It's a kind of resurgence of deism. Well, it easily becomes a kind of functional deism 
but because theologians realize they're not allowed to be deists, there's all kinds of ways of sort of saying, well, we're not being deists because God really is intimately involved and he is really sustaining the world moment by moment and so forth. When we're told that God rests, so this is right at the beginning of Genesis 2, actually, the resting refers to sitting down. It's got connotations of sitting down. It refers to enthronement. God takes up God's throne. Things are good and God begins to reign. There's no reason to think that God stops creating because it's not resting, right? It's enthronement. So we've read into the, the language of rest, which you don't have to translate it that way because it means to sit down. Now, this is where it's important, I think. Do we not live in a world in which, although we encounter things just more of the same, kind of getting stuck and erat and, and so forth, we also experience newness coming into the world. And in fact, every time a child is born, there is this sense of a new person arriving. We don't in that moment think, oh, they've just developed from kind of stuff that was already around and we understand how that works. It's like our language always focuses on the arrival of the new. And the scriptures have a keen awareness of newness happening and breaking in to a situation which has been closed down, but, but also being part of the very the deep gift and promise of life, newness. God continues to create, it seems to me. And how about as an alternative, thinking through the idea that newness is something that God is always interested in and is behind when there's genuine newness, not just more of the same. And God remains creator and is does doing more than sustaining creation. So you have an open system, not a closed system. So it blows open the debate in terms of the possibilities. And that can give us a breath of fresh air. There's just so many different dimensions to this debate that, are, that don't really get proper attention. And that could change. And, and it can help address the issue of fear. It's like, you know, maybe there's a lot of different possibilities here that we can sift through and we can wonder about and we can talk about. Yeah, and it also rescues the deeply theological um, emphasis of those first two chapters of Genesis. You know, those first four uh, verses of chapter two are a kind of hinge between that kind of first Genesis story and the second Genesis story. And when God rests, that idea is repeated twice in two verses. But in between the resting is God blessing yeah. that day. And so there's an interesting connection between God reigning as king and the nature of that kingdom being one of cosmic blessing, yeah, which is precisely the antidote to fear that you're talking about. I think that that's absolutely right. And another very interesting kind of segue or connection is, I mean, the Sabbath is profoundly sacred in scripture, right? It's like, there are other things that are said to be holy, you know, priests and the temple and this and that and the other, but nothing compares with the Sabbath. I mean, that's absolutely clear. There's, there's, right? It's so strong. And 
Jesus says the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. And the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So those are two sayings that kind of two sides of the same coin. He is Lord of the Sabbath. How? Because he's God or because he's human? What's going on there? Well, the Sabbath is still thoroughly sacred, but the nature of the sacred, the nature of God's power is to bless, not to constrain or to demand. The Sabbath is a blessing for us. Its sacred character is not being set aside there, but precisely honored because of the way in which God exercises power in the world and the way in which we are called to exercise power. So there's a kind of a biblical refrain that shows up. It's it's in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It doesn't show up in this form in the New Testament. But uh, there's a phrase, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And I think that this is one of the key texts uh, or refrains to think through, I think, in this in this context. And a reading that kicks in at this point is that the fear of Yahweh, it's not being terrified, it's not being frightened, but it's having a kind of religious awe that is submissive, it's respectful, it's overwhelmed. God is God, you are a mere human being. And that just recognizing that instead of being full of yourself in terms of pride and autonomy, that gets you into the right posture for wisdom, because then you can receive what God tells you and you can obey that and and you can be wise in a, in a biblical sense rather than being wise in your own eyes or something like that. That kind of reading, I think, is very common and it's quite internalized. And I think it's actually utterly wrong. And I think that it sets you up for a, for an encounter with scripture that that is not going to be an intimate encounter with God and, you know, the word made flesh in Jesus and the empowerment of the spirit. And uh, I'll suggest a different reading and, and I'll, I'll say how I think it fits into scripture in a deep way. So um, the fear of Yahweh is something that shows up in biblical narrative and i think that this saying is a reflection on some key biblical narratives in particular narrative with moses in exodus uh, chapter three it's the burning bush episode and you actually get the revelation of you know what yahweh means and, and who this god is so it's a very very central text and moses is afraid initially and i'd like to suggest that the fear of yahweh being the beginning of wisdom what that means is you need to face your fear of yahweh in order to get on the path of wisdom which will take you beyond that initial fear and it's fear it's being terrified and in terms of the hebrew the idea of glossing this with awe rather than fear Linguistically, for people who are into that, a very weak argument. And there's a very detailed, long essay by uh, David Kleins, who's an Old Testament scholar from the UK that goes into this in, in terrific detail. This is talking about being terrified. It's not talking about religious awe, but it's facing that fear 
and moving through that, that then is the path of wisdom, which is the path to life, not the path of death, which is associated with being terrified. Now, the narrative that features Moses bears this reading out, I'd like to suggest. Because Moses moves beyond that initial fear and has this intimate face-to-face -face relationship with Yahweh. And, uh, and you can track it through the narrative in terms of um, Moses getting angry with God and, and God provoking Moses and them speaking intimately together and Yahweh confirming to others of just how close Moses and, and Yahweh are. And Moses is described as a friend of God later on. The path of wisdom, which is the path to life away from death, it's the path into deep covenant and intimacy with God, means facing one's fear and moving beyond that. So you're, it sounds like you're speaking of courage. Well, it would certainly align faith with courage rather than faith with submission, if I can put it like that. And that gives it a different inflection. Faith is trust. Faith is openness. I think in the, the standard understanding of faith and what this refrain means, courage probably doesn't feature because you should be afraid. You should have, you should be in awe of God. You just need to accept that. So I would suggest that this is borne out in the Moses narrative. I think it's borne out in the Abraham narrative as well. Abraham is also referred to as friend of God. And what God wants is for the people of God to have this relationship that Moses has and that Abraham has had. But the people in Exodus 19, for example, they're just too afraid to go up the mountain and they send Moses in their place. They want a mediator. They want someone who's a buffer zone. And they, they quite explicitly say, if we encounter Yahweh, we're going to die. We want you to go up the mountain and you tell us what, what Yahweh tells you. And God concedes to that. So this refrain, I haven't checked recently. It shows up four or five times, I think, in, in Scripture. But there's one instance in the book of Job, which is different. And instead of saying the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, it says, I mean, in the English translations, it, it, the fear of God is wisdom. So there's a different word for God. You don't get Yahweh. So Yahweh has, you could say, the connotations of the intimate Genesis 2 account of God breathing the spirit into the very nostrils of the, the earth creature and so forth. And Yahweh has the connotations of this relationship with Moses that begins in this bracing, fiery way and becomes intimate friendship. So in Job, Job 28, you don't get the fear of Yahweh. It's just the fear of it's translated as Lord or God. And you don't get the beginning of wisdom. It just is wisdom. Now, the thing is, so Job is uh, an example of what's called wisdom literature. The actual deep themes of wisdom are throughout the whole Hebrew Bible, because wisdom is to do with orientation, finding the path of life and tuning into the call of life. And it shows up everywhere. There's a deep wisdom, sensitivity and spirituality behind all of the, the narratives. But there are certain texts that are rooted in the same spirituality. 
but they don't just show us wisdom's discernment for the path to life, but they they have wisdom's reflection on the nature of wisdom, so to speak. So that that's why they get labelled as wisdom literature. So Job is one of those because you get a reflection on the nature of wisdom, and in particular, I mean, you get a reflection in Job twenty-eight, which is where you get this this phrase. But biblical readers are expected to notice the difference. It doesn't say the fear of Yahweh. Oh, what's going on here? And it doesn't say the beginning of wisdom. It just is wisdom. And in Job twenty-eight, is kind of halfway through the book of Job, it's a bit further than half. And you get this reflection on the nature of wisdom and where is wisdom to be found. And it's unclear who's actually speaking as well. But the thing is, it's a partial revelation of the nature of wisdom. Because the book of Job continues and you have uh, Job who is called to repent at the end now. Is he called to repent in dust and ashes, to repent as dust and ashes, or repent of dust and ashes? And you can you can translate the Hebrew in any of those ways. And that's deliberate because the reader is being called to discern what it is that Job is being called to do at the end, because that's the call to us. And the whole book, I would say, read carefully nudges us in the direction of we need to repent of the dust and ashes posture. Uh, and Gustavo Gutierrez, for example, has this reading in his commentary of, of Job. Well, even the uh, philosopher Slavoj Žižek uh, addresses this issue in, in the book of Job by putting sort of the traditional reading of uh, God showing up at the end of Job and addressing Job, you know, who are you? The traditional reading is, you know, once you consider the majesty of God and God's creation, you should be silent and quiet and submissive. And uh, Zizek suggests that no, what God is doing there is showing basically the riotous nature of creation and inviting Job into a deeper engagement with God. So Genesis 32 has this same motif, uh, I think, that you're speaking of, Nick, and that's courage and fear as the human being engages with God, right? It's the Jacob wrestling with the angel. Yeah. I don't think it's spoken of as wisdom in that, in that text, but it's a kind of embodiment of this idea that you're talking about. Yes, that's a very interesting narrative because Jacob is terrified of his encounter with Esau. And there's all kinds of strategizing that, that goes on and the way he divides up the children into the, the different groups and, and what he tells them to say to Esau or to Esau's representatives and so forth. And he waits behind. It's very calculating. It's, it's quite calculating, isn't it? And um, there's the wrestling. And the wrestling is referred to as wrestling with an angel in Hosea. There's a brief re reference in Hosea uh, to, to the wrestling, which is very interesting. That's the only reference to an angel. In the Genesis text, he wrestles with a man. Yeah. And in fact, the narrative is very, very repetitive at that point. Wrestle with a man, a man, a man. You get it like six times. We're told this. And repetition in biblical narrative is always, it's not redundant. It's actually saying something. And um, who is Jacob? 
wrestling with? Well, he's wrestling with God, but that is not the full picture. So you take it seriously. He's wrestling with a man. Also, the narrative does suggest a dream experience as well. But dreams are reality in this outlook on the world. And I think that that's correct. So what goes on in a dream can be utterly real. But when Jacob finally meets up with Esau, he says, to see your face is to see the face of God. He's been wrestling with Esau as God. That's what's going on. It's incredibly profound. And we think sometimes we think, well, if that's what it means, why doesn't it say so? But it, this is the artistry of biblical narrative is you're supposed to read holistically and then notice, make the connection. If you make the connection yourself, the impact of the meaning is so much deeper than if you're hit over the head with it. So scripture doesn't actually tell us what to think. It invites us into a space where we can exercise wisdom and receive wisdom and grow in wisdom. So wisdom calls for wisdom. Wisdom calls forth wisdom. It's indirect and inviting in that sense. It trusts the reader to be wise and to enter into wisdom instead of telling you what to think. That's the heteronomic kind of authoritarian God. No, this is, this is an invitation to friendship, you could say, and to maturity and so forth. That's the way it's set up. And we don't read that way. So we miss so much of what's actually going on. Well, and let me just raise a question there, because I think a lot of people are trained intentionally or unintentionally, right, explicitly or implicitly, to read scripture through a kind of theological template, right? I think, you know, we could call it the theological interpretation of scripture, Yeah. right? That whatever text we go to in scripture, we have a, a kind of grid that's already been given to us that we have to slot these texts into. Yeah. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I absolutely know what what yeah. what you're talking about. Yes, it's a major it's a major problem. How do we get around that? Well, being aware of it as a problem is a start. I mean, I can give you an example actually. So there's a text in Ephesians which theologians love. So chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ, or in the Greek, in him, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. And then the text continues. So the predestination chapter. Yeah. So before the foundation of the world. Now, the way that this is often read is before the foundation of the world is, is interpreted as a reference to eternity before Genesis 1-1, before creation, before the foundation of the world. In a kind of historical sense. Yeah. And the alternate is to postulate a kind of a trans-temporal distinction between essence and existence and to have it on the essence side rather than the existence side. So it's not about history, but it's about some the God side of the covenant rather than the creation side or something like that. I think both of those are actually wrong. So I think the second one is not a solution to the first one. And both of those are theological moves, right? It's, um, you know, Calvin goes for one and Paul Tillich goes for the second. But, but 
I, I'm not happy with either in terms of the exegesis of the text or theologically for that matter. So this is talking about the notion of ele election and that's then being extended to who Paul is writing to at this point. But um, the before the foundation of the world, how can one read that without, you know, assuming or thinking reluctantly or happily that, that Paul is referring to something eternal rather than something temporal? Well, it's not that difficult because the foundation of the earth is narrated in Genesis 1 after Genesis 1.1. The foundations are, are laid for the earth, right? In day, day three, day four. So it can be referring to something before that. And the other foundation that's established is the Sabbath as well. But so what happens before the Sabbath or before, you know, um, the earth being established? Well, God says in Genesis 1, 3, let there be light. That's the first let there be. And that refers to or at least has very strong connotations of God's glory. So the grace that grounds our salvation has its foundation, you could say, in let there be light, God's glory, which will fill the earth as God becomes all in all. That is the foundation. It's not before Genesis 1.1. And it takes us into an understanding of election, which is quite different from what the different ecclesiastical traditions and theological traditions have come up with. Israel is called to be a light, let there be light, a light to the nations. Israel is chosen to reveal who God is to all the peoples. In the process of being chosen to be that and to do that, they have the special gift of experiencing what it is that they're called to reveal. But this life that they've been given and which they're called to live out is not a life that they possess. It's a life that they're called to live. As soon as Israel and also the church assumes that they can possess it. Well, you have the problem of the light under the bushel, right? As Jesus says, don't put your light under a bushel. You'll snuff out the light. This is the Genesis 12, uh, kind of the fundamental, you could say, mandate or, or blessing of Israel, right? Uh, Abraham is blessed by God, not just to be blessed, right? But Genesis 12, 3 explicitly says, so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is built in from the very beginning. Yes, that's right. And so election is to have the blessing of displaying the blessing. But it's like the gift of life itself. Life is a gift. And we live embracing the gift uh, and responding to the gift and to live in the light of that blessing is to be blessed and to bless others. The two can't be separated. And the more you find your life blessing others, the more deeply you experience the blessing yourself. I mean, once you get onto that, that journey, you know, the joy that the scriptures speak of repeatedly is a very, very profound experience. This is life.
not just existence. So that understanding of election that I've sketched tries to honour that particular dynamic. And there are a number of biblical texts in the New Testament that refer to before the foundation. And there are some that refer to since the foundation. And since the foundation means since the Sabbath, because creation gets established through the Sabbath. Creation has its origin, you could say, in the let there be light, but it's uh, established in a particular way with God's rest on the Sabbath. Well, maybe let me just throw uh, one more piece in here, especially regarding this Ephesians passage. I'm always fascinated by Paul and his most often subtle, but sometimes quite explicit anti-imperial language in terms of the Roman Empire. I'm wondering in this Ephesians 1 passage, okay, uh, we took our point of departure in terms of Genesis 1. Could Paul also be implying a kind of critique of the Roman Empire as the foundation of the known world in the first century? Yes, I think that's extremely likely. My sense is that what Paul does is he doesn't think, okay, there's this oppressive empire. I need to sort of marshal a critique against that whenever I can, which would be a kind of a, a negative strategy in a sense, which I think many Christians are very drawn to that. But you can end up in a posture of just permanent critique. So I think what Paul does is in focusing on the grace of God, the freedom of God, right, the empowerment of God and so forth, he allows that to show up, you know, the posturing of the um, the false gods and is very conscious of that happening. So he is engaged in critique, but he doesn't start with critique. And I think it's important for us not to start in critique of the culture around us because we need to have something to say, not just something to speak against. Um, otherwise, it's not going to give people life. Yes, this critique absolutely needs to happen. And if people are in pain as a result of oppressive forces, they need to voice that pain. They don't need to figure out a positive alternative before they say something. So I'm not saying that. But it's like for the community of faith that does have these deep resources of uh, wisdom and life, we need to speak out of that sense of life. And the exposure of the um, the powers that be will naturally be a part of that and will be all the more powerful for not just railing against the powers and principalities. If you see what I mean, it, yeah. it's I think it can create a different tone. That's kind of what I think Paul is doing. Yeah, he is a critic of the empire, but his critique of the empire is in the service of and flows out of his understanding of, of how God is at work in the world and what genuine power and grace are. I think that's the radical nature of Paul, is that he does not feel any sense of obligation to engage in his theological work within the frame imposed by the Roman Empire. Right, which includes he doesn't immediately react against the Roman Empire. Right. Because that's to give it too much power. Yeah. But at the same time, what he says does address the empire. And I think, you know, in a, in a very deep foundational kind of way. Um, it completely unsettles the posturing of the empire. Yeah. So I'm very glad that that's being picked up these days, you know, in, in more New Testament scholarship. So, so I, I agree with you. I think that that's right. 
Well, let's um, let's wrap this part of our discussion that uh, was a departure on uh, Genesis 1. Let's wrap that up. And then I want to ask you a couple of other questions just in terms of the resources within this reformational tradition that we work in and that the ICS grows out of. This is something that I would love to see a kind of renaissance today of these unique reformational and, and philosophical tools that we can bring to our engagement with scripture. Could you talk a little bit about the work of Hank Hart and Calvin Seerveld and others you've inherited from them? You're trying to add your own contributions. What are some of these tools that we need that we need to recover for today in our engagement with scripture? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Cal Zierveld and Hank Hart. So, I, I mean, there's others that we could also talk about, but let's focus on them. I mean, I've learned a lot from Cal Zierveld. I read his little book, Balaam's Apocalyptic Prophecies, quite early on in my you know, relationship with ICS before I arrived to be a student here. And that's been republished recently as How to Read the Bible to Hear God Speaking, I think. But I, I quite like the original title. So. In that book and its more recent edition, uh, what Cal does is he he's very much rooted in the redemptive historical way of reading scripture as an alternative to the historical critical and to the moralistic and to the doctrinalistic. And that sets you up to read holistically, you know, redemptive historical. It's to value narrative as deep. It is open to everybody. But at the same time, there's a subtlety to narrative. And Cal points us in the direction of reading holistically, reading, looking for nuance in the, the artistry. So when he was first writing, this was ahead of the scholars who have really since then explored the narrative artistry of, of scripture. And the artistry gets you into a certain space in which God is saying, Enter into this with your imagination. Allow yourself to pick up the play of the meaning and the interplay. So it speaks to you at another level. And I think there's the potential for allowing the scriptures to connect to your subconscious, to the symbols that are at work, as it were, in the subconscious, and to, and to work redemptively at that deep level of who you are. So that is very powerful. I really appreciate that about Cal's work. And um, his emphasis on translation. I do find certain texts where there is um, the possibility of a different reading is at stake. I invariably find that there's a translation issue that needs to be attended to. So he's helped me a lot. And uh, Hank Cart has also helped me tremendously. He wrote a book called Setting Our Sights by the Morning Star. That was became a bit of a controversial book in our circles. And I've sometimes listened to people exposit what they think Hank was saying and to exposit with enthusiasm. And I've thought, yeah, he's not actually saying that. And if he was saying that, I can understand why some people would be worried or upset. But but there's there's something else going on. But um, the great gift of that book to me was there's a promise for a kind of, I call it an evangelical reading of scripture that is beyond the kind of 
conservative versus liberal or traditionalist versus progressivist polarization. And my sense is it's got some affinities with older evangelical scholarship that happened before the rise of fundamentalism and then the reactions against that. And I've read some of the sort of material from back then, which in its approach to scripture, it's like careful, it can be quite inventive, it's not defensive, um, it's open, open to all kinds of interesting ideas. And so I, th I think that something happened in the evangelical tradition that it started to close down and polarize and, and, and so forth. And Henk, as someone who's an heir to the reform tradition, is kind of in his own way digging back into a, an earlier, more vibrant, uh, more mature, more confident, exploratory engagement with scripture that, that was there in the tradition. And, and I'd love to see us get that back. Um, I really like his emphasis on what well, he uses the the imagery of light again, which we've been talking about as a kind of way to understand how scripture works, which when the scriptures reflect on the nature of scripture, so to speak, the, these kind of images are often central. So he wasn't being arbitrary. And he has a great sense of the kind of the sort of spiritual direction character to scripture which actually allows you to pick up the kind of the deep coherence to scripture as well as its dynamism in a way that if you focus on order, let's say, you don't really get the coherence. You're trying to shoehorn the text into a framework and you're skewing things. But this, this sense of a, a spiritual unity, the scriptures speak out of the spirit of God, there is this deep kind of spiritual directional coherence and life. And you can tune into that as a person of faith. And I think Hank has a fantastic sense for that because he is a Bible reader who reads scripture every day, very closely, very thoughtfully, but he's not a theologian. And that is very much to his advantage because he doesn't get sort of sidelined in certain ways. So I, I found that book to be um, very liberating. And Jim Altheus had a book called uh, Hermeneutics of Ultimacy, which uh, looks at scripture in terms of the kind of faith discourse character to to scripture. But but that also, it relates very deeply to Cal's work and to, to Hank's work. But the three of them together, they all come from the same generation of ICS professors. And wow, I mean, they're very rich. And, and I've you know been inspired by all three of those sources, really. And there's a lot in our tradition that has a real future to it if we make it our own and then run with that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, Nick, when you speak like this, you sound like someone who, to use a kind of academic term, you're, you sound like a, a continuing student, like a lifelong learner when it comes to scripture. You seem very aware of the challenges and, and the frustrations, what keeps you coming back to this deep uh, and extensive study of, of scripture? Well, that's a big question for me. I think somehow, very early on in my Christian life, I got the sense that experiencing scripture as a living kind of force, as it were, was key, and that the scriptures can be trusted to be that. Um, 
I think there's so much in scripture that's amazing that we haven't seen and it's hiding in plain sight. So I have this sense of the truth is hiding in plain sight. And the, the reason it's hiding, well, it's partly because of the indirect way in which God reveals truth so that we have to enter into it and embrace it before it, it really hits us. And I think that's part of the pedagogy of scripture. And I also think that our, our kind of frameworks and our expectations are also blocking, you know, what, what we're hearing. And so, I mean, one of the things I want to do is write something just on the opening page of the Old Testament and the opening page of the New Testament. Because what's going on in both places is absolutely explosive. There's stuff going on there that hasn't been seen. And it makes sense that this explosive stuff is going to be there at the beginning because the way God goes about wisdom and inviting us into wisdom is we're not dropped into the deep end of something that's esoteric that only very smart people can figure out or something like that. We're actually told things in a certain way at the beginning and then, then we're told to work that sort of through later on. I mean, I'll give you an example from the book of Job. It's absolutely clear in the book of Job that the three friends are wrong in what they say. We're told that. God says it. Now, that seems pretty direct. But there's a fourth friend, Elihu. God doesn't say anything about Elihu. Why? It's deliberate. We have to decide, is Elihu on the side of wisdom or on the side of the friends and their false wisdom? Elihu, we have to figure out, is Elihu actually the wisdom, has the wisdom that the, the three friends don't, or is Elihu more of the same? Very interesting. Calvin is amongst the interpreters that think Elihu's got it right. No, Elihu has got it wrong. But you have to work that through for yourself. You're given insight, which you then have to work with yourself. So, the beginning of scripture is going to give us something which we then have to work through. There's going to be something explosive there and there's stuff that we haven't seen. It's the same with the first first page of Matthew's gospel, for example, as well. So I, want, I do want to write on those because I think if you can challenge people to read the beginning differently, then you're supposed to read what follows in the light of the beginning in some significant sense, right? And um, it can help us develop a different kind of spirituality and way of tuning into what God is saying and, and how we might be yeah, a blessing to the world rather than a pain in the butt. You know, if scripture, if scripture is a living word, then it is dynamite that we in the Christian community are playing with. And we don't recognize the explosiveness for life that it contains. So, uh, Nick, it's been a great honor to have this conversation with you. Yeah, well, thank you. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Danielle, what's your pleasure? Well, my pleasure has been 
for the past number of weeks at this point, a documentary series called Up, or the Up series. I think it started filming in 1964, and it started off with these this group of 14 seven-year-old children in London, and every seven years it comes back and like checks on where they are in their lives and it's basically trying to so at least it starts out trying to point out how you know some kids just have more opportunities than others and some kids are like basically doomed from the start in terms of their the possibilities for the directions that their lives can go in and that kind of like falls apart in different ways throughout the series in interesting ways actually but it's been really strange to like see real people grow up mm. and have this like team of people come in and interview them about their lives every seven years and like have them assess where they are in terms of some key areas. And it's funny because some of them like end up getting disillusioned with the whole thing fairly early on and like refusing to come back for certain seven yearly check ins. And yeah. It's been kind of my pleasure. Is it a pleasure? I'm not sure. It's just kind of a strange fascination that I've had for the last few weeks. I don't think that I would be emotionally equipped to deal yeah. with that. Uh, for those of you listening to us, Danielle has uh, told me about this show several times and I find it fascinating. But um, every time I'm going to go and watch it, I step away from it because the fact that it's real people and seeing their struggles over time somehow is too real for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially later in the series, a number of them start talking about how weird it is to have lived their lives having to do this documentary. <laughs> and like, ha- again, having these people come in every seven years and ask them to like, dig up all this stuff from their childhood and like, assess their lives in these specific ways that they don't actually go around consciously thinking of between the seven years. And how it's like, I would never force my (laughs) child to do that. Like, that's a thing that I would do (laughs) with my life. And they just filmed, the guy just died, I think in 2019 or 2020. And so the last one they filmed was 2019. And so they're like 65 years old or something at that point, which is an impressive project of, in terms of longevity. (laughs) That's reality TV taken to a whole new level. Yes. Um, What I am... When I mention as my pleasure is actually not escapism, but it is somehow uh, Netflix and like other uh, streaming services have uh, made many uh, Colombian soap operas mm-hmm. available uh, anywhere, so I can watch them here in Canada. And you know, as a Colombian person, you grow up with soap operas, but but you have a very um, uh, ambiguous relationship with them because they tend to really like harp on some of the things that happen every in everyday life for Colombians. So I wasn't too much of a fan when I was there, but now I have experienced a, a renaissance of my own love of Colombian soap operas. And for those of you who have experienced them before, they are like 160 episodes and every episode is one hour and 20 minutes. So they are intense and they are long and there is so much that happens at so many different levels. So if this is my way to 
kind of return to Colombia and see all of that and recognize myself in all of it. So I, I've been enjoying a lot of that recently. And there is a lot of content because each one of them has many, many minutes to watch. That's it for our show this week and for our series. Thanks for listening along. We have a new series on political thought in a post-2020 world in the works starting next week, so stay tuned for that. If you're interested in hearing more from Nick and in joining any of his upcoming remote courses, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aris, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Hector as at acerof underscore Hector. You can follow me as at beware the Eddie, And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on the radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. Mm-hmm.